I I've been told that this final update of this disclosure plan is uh, very clever and will surprise everyone and it's very cleverly done. Thorhan said to me, this is genius. That's this. So I wait always to make a judgment of what I see in this story. But also because what's important now? It's to take it step by step to the public. ETs are real. That's the first step. And that's a big thing. ETs are real and they have been here for a long time and have worked with our governments. And that's the tough, first tough part. And this is happening whether uh, some people like Stephen Greer will say all the ETs are positive, whether uh, someone like David Grush will say all the ETs are a threat, uh, they are negative. Uh, I would say doesn't matter for the moment. What matters is that these different narratives blend in with the different current of thoughts and it just goes through. It goes through the, 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 the gate to the people's mind. Whatever they think, whatever they think about aliens, it goes through their mind and they realize, wow, aliens exist, they are, it's real, but they've been here and they've worked with our governments. Oh wow, but then, once the, the, the mentalities of the collective unconscious of humanity has realized that and it's assimilated, then we can pass to the next step, contact. You're listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, Here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, I'm very happy to have Elena Danan here in the studio of Exopolitics Today. So welcome, Elena. Thank you, Michael. I'm very glad to be here. This is good fun. Thank you very much. Well, I'm really looking forward to being able to ask you some questions in person about some of these topics that I know we've been looking at for the last few years and I've been able to interview you a few times and we've talked on the on the phone and but this is the first time we get to actually ask questions in person so it's very important so I want to just begin with uh, the relationship you have with uh, Ia or Enki and how important that is to understand our ancient history as a civilization well, um, Ia contacted me in 2021 to, well, it was the first contact, and he started to give me information about our true history, the true history of the Earth. It turned out that I discovered and I learned that there was a reason why I was calling, it, calling him um, an old friend, because... Um, I knew him from a previous life, so this was something easy to to be to feel comfortable with him very very quickly. Although he is very impressive, you know, he's very tall and he he has an energy field, a frequency field that is so powerful that in my third density body, when I go and meet him physically, I cannot approach him. It it 
just it it it's it's quite difficult it's so powerful oh he is an alchemist He's, he calls himself a cosmic alchemist um he he developed he um his knowledge to such a point that he became immortal and this is something that we we, we can talk about it's the Anunnaki have different grades in their society, different caste. I wouldn't say caste in the sense uh, uh, of conflicting with each other. I would say like a society organization. And the, the higher class of the, the Anunnaki society, the royals, as I can say, they have this ability to access the immortality of the flesh if they want so. So that's what Ia decided to do. For certain reasons, he decided to undergo the journey to reach out through alchemical transmutation, immortality of the flesh. That means that his body now is stable, he won't decay. And this allows him to preserve his knowledge, but also access higher realms of consciousness, higher realms of understanding, and connect directly with source. We can all connect with source because we are all fractal of it, you know, but uh, what he can do is actually manipulate the, and use the very substance of source. He can tap into it and create himself using the source material. That's why he's so powerful. And I um I think I think that we have a tremendous advantage to to and, and and gift to to know more about his wisdom his wisdom is amazing um he sometimes he says words to me and um days after i discovered that there was a, a secret meaning behind these words his wisdom goes beyond what we could expect is uh, is amazing. So I meet him, him him physically. I'm meeting him physically. It's not channeling. It's not download. It's not. I'm actually traveling into space to meet him on board a ship. I meet him on his ship, on the Nibiru ship, which is an incredible place. So that's. Do you want to tell us about the Nibiru ship because? The way you described it to me it was almost like a a caste system or there was a very clear differentiation between uh, the scientists, the, the crew, the pilots and the royals. Yes. So if you want to tell us. I was I was very impressed and it was the first time that I, I was confronted to so, to such a, uh, an organization in a society. Because usually when I, I visit um, some motherships where there are certain type of people or culture or when I go to Ganymede, for instance, there are the Ginvo or there are other people, 
they have a st it's a uniformity in their standards. For the Anunnaki, it's different because there are, I would say, two main two speeds. There are the people like us who live their lives very long. They can prolong their life using monoatomic gold, and when they feel their body is tired enough, they clone themselves. They can they can clone themselves and uh, transfer their consciousness, but they will. Oh, undergo the cycle of reincarnation, of course, but they will never be able to do what the royals can do because they are a specific type of bloodline. The royals can access this immortality. And because they can access this immortality, they, are, they live out of time. So on the Nibiru ship, the royal quarters where Ia lives it's absolutely mind-blowing. It's Baroque architecture. You would think you enter like in an Indian temple. Like, you know, um, there are rivers. I saw a river running through it. Gardens, beautiful gardens. The fragrances are amazing with plants I've never seen anywhere else. Um, mixed with a beautiful extravagant architecture very everything is sculpted there's there's nothing blank there's no surface blank and there are gardens and besides that when you get out of the the royal's quarter you get into the other habitat of the ship for the crew for instance so you have the crew or the the military or the scientists you know and the, the normal people and it's total different world. It's very futuristic, uh, very very futuristic architecture, and um, and very advanced technology, extremely advanced technology. And people wear uniforms. It's like a bit being on the ship of the galactic collection of worlds, but a higher level. And the discrepancy of of world of architecture of amb ambience is is quite impressive. Really impressive. So the lives of the crew on the Nibiru, are, are we talking about people that are kind of very similar to uh, like extraterrestrials that are part of the Galactic Federation as opposed to the royals that live for tens of or even hundreds of thousands of years? Yes, they are. They are all Anunnaki. Uh, in fact, they call themselves Anachim. They... The Anachim, or Anunnaki, if you will, they are um, a compound of different species, different races. It's a galactic culture from their own galaxy, their own world. And they they have, you can find humans, reptilioid, reptilians, uh, greys, grey type, and other species. But and something in common that they have, I, I noticed, is that Whatever their species or their race, they have this elongated skull, a little more or less elongated. So it's, I think it's a common trait in their galaxy. And that was interesting. Um, yeah. So now when the Anunnaki came to Earth and they established a presence, 
Now, the Anunnaki on the Nibiru, what they did was they created avatars, avatar bodies, to transfer their consciousness. So when the Anunnaki came, I mean, how much time did they actually spend in their real physical bodies on Earth as opposed to, like, transferring their consciousness into an avatar? Well, I do not know exactly the time, but they first came into in, on Earth in their, their space suit. They, they are described even like fish people because they were they were wearing uh, shiny clothes there their space suit I suppose environmental suit it didn't I know it didn't take long I don't know how how long but it didn't take long for them to create body suits or environmental suits which are bodies into in, in which they can transfer their consciousness because you know uh, well, the conditions of radiation, gravity, electromagnetism, they, they cannot live in that. They cannot take it. It's so different from where they come from, you know. In all their ships, it's really very well regulated with certain conditions. And uh, so they, they needed to, if they, as they were going to live on, to live on Earth and, and create colonies, it was a long-term stay, so then they decided an easy way, which was creating uh, avatar bodies. Mm. Now, I know that there's a connection between the Anunnaki, as described in the uh, Sumerian cuneiform texts, and the gods, the Olympian gods, and, of, of course, uh, the Roman, Latin gods. So, you know, my question is, if we think of uh, Zeus as the sky god in the Greek pantheon, and we think of uh, Poseidon as the god of the water in the Greek pantheon, uh, are we talking about these two brothers, Enlil and Enki? Exactly, Michael, exactly. Um, Zeus, was, Zeus was the thunder god, and he was the the god of the sky, the master of the sky, the leader of all the gods. Mm -hmm. He loved to play with humans. And it's said that the Greek gods had uh, a board game and they were playing the humans, fighting each other, you know. And it's exactly what Yahweh did, uh, Aka and Lil. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and Lil is, th is the thunder god. And in other traditions, for instance, um, in... Um, in the Yezidi traditions, where I was, I was to northern Mesopotamia recently, and to them, the thunder god is the god who destroyed the earth and created the flood. It really, and it's Enlil. So Zeus, Zeus as, en, as Enlil, which is very obvious, and Enki as Poseidon, it absolutely fits and and he, you know, had his residence in Atlantis. So he always came from the sea when he came to... He, he, first, he lived in Eridu with the others. And then they split, they built their places. And um, Enki went to Atlantis and there was already a, a kind of a civilization there, but not very well developed. So he developed it and it was his home on Earth. And he always had this, um, he's represented with a trident. Well, this is actually a weapon. And I've seen it. I've seen it. Because 
Ia, well, Anki, we say Ia, is a, is a, is a, is a, collects, is a collector, he collects antiques, and he has all these ancient weapons, um, which is extraordinary, extraordinary. Yes, he was Poseidon, he was Poseidon, Oannes, um, yes, that was him. So, Enki it was Poseidon, yes. uh, Enlil was Zeus, yes. the thunder god, and Poseidon was regarded as the kind of founder or the protector of Atlantis. Yes. And of course, we know Atlantis ended in a, in a terrible way. Um, and I think you have some interesting information about the role of Enlil or, or Zeus in terms of ending Atlantis. So what do you know about that? Yes, uh, as we are in the Greek uh, mythology, we can go back to what Plato said about Atlantis. They say that he said that the gods, uh, the council of the gods, were not happy with Atlantis and what was going on there. So they decided to destroy it, and in destroying it, they caused a flood to the rest of the planet. So that's one thing. And this particular aspect, the god of the gods, or the thunder god, or the god of the sky, wasn't happy. Was or was angry at humans and decide to destroy them to reset everything to ground zero. This is common to many traditions. Mesopotamia, of course. We have other traditions. So we know that Enlil and Enki have brothers who are not getting on well together because Enlil was on a personal mission which was he wanted to create his own empire using earth he earth to him was the groundwork to create his own empire and he, he developed uh, slavery on earth he wanted to enslave the most people as possible and he had uh, put in charge his geneticist his scientist and and key ia ia was at the head of them to try to get these these humans to this first humans to to be formed as slaved altered as their dna and make them docile and compliant yeah i wasn't okay with that but enlil was the master of this expedition and so he was in control and and he said okay yeah i said okay let's see what what's what's going on and he he discovered who were these humans, that they were already the product of another experiment. So to go back to Atlantis, um, well, Ia decided to protect the humans, not to enslave them and try to free them from slavery. And from Atlantis, where he created his own bubble of protection, he was trying to, to, to get this work done. The thing is, um, and Lil was trying everywhere possible to get rid of Ia and Ki. And he couldn't destroy Atlantis because it was well protected and there were other ETs there. There were um, the Altians. There were other colonies as well. And it was so protected you couldn't attack it. So what Enlil did, what, because Enlil was... Uh, half reptilian and had a reptilian mind 
and he welcomed the Sikar as well on Earth. So Enlil decided to collapse the Atlantean society from the inside. And that's typical what the reptilians have been doing until now, collapsing societies from the inside, uh, creating groups that are going, creating division and groups that are going to argue and fight against each other. But what, what, what Anlil did, he, he really wanted to, to collapse the center of Atlantis. Because Atlantis was uh, structured as such. There was Atlad, citadel, and the citadel was home to, of course, uh, um, Ia and the Altians and the, the, this class of scientists who were working together. And there were all the power supplies, the pyramid, the generators, all the knowledge was in Atlad, in the citadel, central citadel. And that was un unreachable. So, and around, you had colonies, the colonies, the colonies. So it was very mixed, these colonies. So what Anlin managed to do, because the colonies, you could trade with them, they were open. So he infiltrated and he sent his people to infiltrate the colonies and mount the colonies against Atla, the citadel. And the narrative was, look at them, they consider themselves an, as an elite and they retain the knowledge from you. You have right to this knowledge. You are entitled to use their knowledge, their genetics, uh, sciences, their power technologies, their weapons. You are entitled. And that was it. That was it. So they were mounting the people against the citadel. And until uh, riots occurred, and there were moments where the citadel was invaded by infiltrated. And it was, it's been going on for a long while. So, um, what Ia decided was, okay, they're going, they're coming for it. It's going, it's not going to get better. We are going to hide this knowledge. I'm going to start to hide this knowledge and take it away from Atlantis and put it in different places in the world. And we will mark these places. And that's what they did. That's what they did. Well, the, the colonies got hand, their hands on some of the genetic technology, the holographic table, all the devices, they got their hands on that. And they brought it in, in the colonies. They started to, you know, fire by power, just influence, so much influence, so, so much. They started to do genetic experiments to create creatures that would be able to take over the, the, the Altians and the, 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 the Anunnaki, uh, the faction of Ia in the citadel, and all the scientists, and sort of storming it. So they were playing with genetics, not really having the knowledge. They, they were doing chaotic stuff. It, it, it was terrible, terrible, terrible. And this was getting worse and worse. They were creating creatures, like a bit they were trying to probably make super soldiers at the time, you know. And that's that's when all went wrong. And my point is when you you think about the people, there's a lot of people who remember having lived in Atlantis a lot. And you discover that there are two stories. People who remember the Atlanteans be, being in a, in, a, in a part of Atlantis where 
It was extremely spiritual, beautiful people working with crystals, being very spiritual. It was beauty, science, peace, wisdom. And other people remember the riots, the genetic experiments, uh, the conflicts. Um, so it's because it was in the colonies, not in the citadel. So um, I'm glad to bring this clarity. But you... I had a the conversation today and you told me about the correspondence with Earth colonies, or the, the modern colonies of our era, how it works. So you, you, you remember what you said? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, that's a, a kind of really interesting point that where you have modern day or recent uh, modern history about these different colonies that were set up. I, I know, for example, uh, in Australia, uh, the Australian history, uh, the British Empire, especially London, the Parliament, uh, the laws coming from the Parliament were very humane and ethical in terms of how to treat Indigenous peoples. But the colonists themselves were quite ruthless. And, for example, uh, the colonists uh, wiped out the Tasmanian Aborigine. I mean, every last Aborigine in the uh, current state of Tasmania was wiped out. Uh, they were considered uh, non-human or less than human by the colonists. And so they took it upon themselves to just eradicate what they considered to be less than human. And, uh, and certainly other Aborigines in other areas of Australia were, were, were treated pretty poorly even though the British Empire had various policies on how to treat Indigenous peoples. And we see the same thing in the Americas, where the Native Americans, uh, like the, the Cherokee and the other tribes from the eastern states, signed agreements with the Crown prior to the independence. And the, the Crown recognised that the Indian nations had a right to the land, and so they said that they would recognise that right and protect it. Now, once you had the War of Independence and America then became free and independent, the eventually those that treaty with the British uh, was replaced by treaties that were then broken by the colonists, or well, of course, the American government. So, you know, another example of, of how colonists behave much more aggressively, uh, less ethically than the, the kind of centre of political power. So I totally understand how in the final days of Atlantis, how you had the, the centre uh, kind of like behaving and doing things in an ethical way, but the, the colonies, the far-flung colonies especially, would have been, as you said, kind of like a rabid. So yeah, that's that's very important. So the the yeah, so I would agree that the colonists, uh, the, the colonies would have been much more violent, much more an example of of Atlantis not working. Yes, yes, make makes so much sense. Yes, I'm glad you explained this. Yes, yeah, interesting. So now let's move forward a little bit to the making of the kind of like 
Hebrew and then the Christian and then the Islamic religions. And, and they're all predicated on, on Abraham, this patriarch that left the city of Ur, uh, an ancient Sumerian city that at that time of Abraham was, uh, I believe that was part of the Akkadian or maybe the Assyrian Empire. So Abraham leaves uh, Ur, taking with him his family and, and the records, the history of Ur. And up until around the 7th century, uh, the, the Hebrews actually had um, recognized the Elohim. And they recognized multiple Elohim. And Yahweh was just one amongst a number of them. And he wasn't by any means the only one, nor the most loved one. Um, I mean, I, I just did an interview recently with Paul Wallace uh, in his book, the, the Eden Conspiracy, he describes how Asherah uh, was a female deity that was worshipped by the ancient Hebrews. Uh, she was worshipped. But then around uh, 600 BC, uh, the Hebrews got together and decided to revise out of the Hebrew texts or the recognized canon all mention of Asherah and the other Elohim and just focus on Yahweh as the one and only God. And so, to me, Yahweh was just one amongst many gods. So, I mean, who was he? I mean, was he, was he just a ruthless Anunnaki that, or, yeah, do you want to explain who was Yahweh? Yeah. Ya Yahweh was Enlil. Yahweh was Enlil. And he wanted to play with humans and rule this world. He was cruel. He was a cruel, evil person. Um, all he wanted to, to play, he was um, sadistic, you know. He wanted to, to, to play with humans and torture them. And this evil entity was, it was Enlil, it was Enlil. The, the Elohim or the, the Anachim, it's another word for them, which is the Anunnaki. Um, they, they were many, many on earth, and there was an, a group of them who were in charge and were fighting uh, against each other for custody of territories. The territorial wars were going on all the time, all the time. Um, they, so you had Enlil playing Yahweh. And others as well, playing other gods. Marduk. Marduk played Satan. And Ninurta, Enlil's son, played Allah. And there's, you know, there is always something that has caught my attention in the, the Islamic religion. I would be burnt for saying that in other times. <laughs> uh, there is no a greater God than Allah and he's the greater greatest among all gods. I mean you mean that there are other gods? <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. And that that's so they played, they played and sometimes they were swapping, you know, they were swapping games, you know. Um 
Yahweh, Yahweh and uh, well, Anlil and Marduk were playing so much power games, power games, power games. Um, so that's who they are, who they were. Okay, well, that's very, very interesting. I, I know that uh, this is something that historically can be shown that uh, the Hebrews did transition from a polytheistic religion to a monotheistic one with this total focus on Yahweh as the one and only God. Now, if we move forward to Yeshua or, or Jesus, he quite, well, let's just say that there are Christian texts that show that, and, and, and actually even in the, the current Bible, there, there are passages that refer to uh, Yeshua not acknowledging Yahweh as his God. And certainly the Gnostic Christians, uh, according to them, uh, Jesus believed in another God. Yes rather than Yahweh. So yeah, what what happened there with uh, Jesus and the God he prayed to and Yahweh of the Old Testament? Yes, what, what happened is that uh, the good faction of the Anunnaki weren't happy with Yahweh, well, Enlil having too much power. And so they sent Yeshua, who was a, a hybrid, a descendant of this bloodline to try to get people to open their eyes on who was this evil entity. And it was not a god of love, of truth, of compassion at all. And the, the message of Yeshua was the connection with God, the God, the kingdom of God, you have it inside of you. And you can connect directly with God by yourself. And he was giving the people their sovereignty. And he said, there's an important scripture that says in the, the Old Testament, that the New Testament, sorry, that says that uh, Yeshua went to see the priests of Yahweh. And he said, your father is not my father. And he was making the point with that. That's why the, the, the priests of Yahweh wanted to get rid of Yeshua. And Yeshua was, interestingly, uh, speaking of his own father. So I, I understand that sometimes he was speaking about his genetic father, the father who created the bloodline of the patriarchs, Aka and Ki. And sometimes he was talking of the father in terms of source creator that with with which we are all connected and that there's something that is very important is that when we read in the ancient scripture that we are made at the image of god it's not the body it's the soul we are a fractal of source consciousness and because we are a fractal of source consciousness we have a bit of it in us and we can connect could be by quantum entanglement you know we have the connection directly to create our source we can tap into this infinite knowledge just by meditating and connecting with our own soul finding the core essence of our soul 
And then we have the connection with source, with God. And that's what Ia is teaching as well. I'm seeing him regularly and he says all these things. That we need, we need no priest, we need no church, no religion. He says the same thing, thing as Yeshua was saying. It's exactly the same, the same words. He said, you have the connection. If you go within, you can connect with Creator, everyone in the universe. And he's been fighting in the past to get everyone to understand this and get out of slavery. Because that's what he wanted, humanity to get away and out of this slavery inflicted by Enlil. So then we have this kind of historical understanding of, of how the Hebrew tradition kind of like changed from a polytheistic approach to the divine, to understanding life where you had different gods, different deities that were worshipped, that were part of their way of kind of like accessing source energy, if you like, um, to one where there, there was this kind of growth in monotheistic uh, faith systems. And of course, Yahweh was like a pretender, really. Yes. He was a pretender. And those that challenged that, like Yeshua, Jesus, were excluded. And we know that the Gnostics were uh, persecuted very badly, especially once Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, that the that, that kind of monotheistic faith system uh, became dominant. So now we have this kind of return of Enki. And you've been talking about that, and not just you, you've been talking about that since uh, 2021 that he returned. So what what does that mean, you know, the return of Enki Ia? What does that mean for us today? It means that we are free from the slavery. We are free from the millennia of enslavement that Enlil had set up on Earth. He is back because the chains have been broken. You know, this religion, this what Enlil or Yahweh has had constructed, it was a whole power system of control of humanity. They create, he created him and his, his team, his followers, the deep state, the deep state, you know? He is, is at the origin of it, to, to continue his work. It hasn't changed since the time of the expedition, when Anil managed to enslave most of the, the, a lot of the population on Earth, not everyone, but in these areas a lot. And it had spread out to the whole world in our modern times, until recently when Anil was expelled from Earth and all the regressives. But until now, he's at the origin of the deep state, of the Illuminati. The, the Illuminati are the products of Enlil. And um, the big religious institution in Rome that we know about, 
it's sensible to name it. <laughs> um, but yes, that's all the power control. And the return of Ia is the return. You know, people have been saying, oh, Jesus, Jesus will return. Jesus is going to return. Well, my understanding of it, and to me, it's blowing my mind with evidence, is that it's not Jesus, the soul, the person, the character. It's not him as a person or soul. It's what we call the Christ consciousness. It's yeah. It's, he started it. It's the, the, the philosophy, the spirituality of regaining our human sovereignty, of re-empowering ourselves, unlocking our potential, and starting to vibrate to our right frequency, where we should have been we should have been from the start. Ea comes back with this gift. And I think when people say the, the return of, of Yeshua, it's not Yeshua, it's what is teachings, what he represents. And Yeshua is anyway the descendant. He has the bloodline of Ea. So it's in a way... His return, not him, but his, the blonde line, the original Adamic DNA returns. Eauford gave back the key of the original Adamic DNA to the earth, to the humans of earth, to the earth alliance. And as I explained, it's now implemented in the medbeds if you choose it, if you want to repair some genetic, uh, you know, problems that you have, you can use this. But anyways, um, yeah, that's not what I would say. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Ia returned um, 2021 and there is some kind of element of that return which is consistent with prophecy. Yes. And I mean, we're not just talking about the return of Jesus, there's also the return of Pizzacotl, or Kukulkan yes. and uh, Kalki, I mean, many traditions, yeah. and so, you know, we could go in many directions there. But I want to kind of like get to another aspect of uh, the return of Ia, uh, Enki, which is uh, this transition in terms of custodianship of our solar system, yes. that, uh, that our solar system has gone from one that was controlled by the Draconians and the Orions to one where uh, now humanity is in charge of the future of our solar system. And Enki Ia has, together with other extraterrestrial groups, has kind of like overseen that transition. So w why is that? Why, why did they do that? Why did the extraterrestrials, the different councils, feder the Federation, Galactic Federation, and Ia, why did they choose to transfer custodianship of the solar system from the greys, the Draco, the to, to the Earth Alliance? Well, the star system was um, in the custody of the old empire, the Anach Empire or Anunnaki Empire. And the two main uh, outposts were 
Earth and the planet Saturn. Nobody could uh, approach Saturn, I remember. I remember before all of this happened, <clears throat> when I was uh, flying with Thorhan, uh, we had to avoid Saturn, not pass inside of the rings. And he, he wouldn't tell me, he wouldn't tell me. He said, no, no, it, it belongs to someone else and we must not infringe the territory. Okay. And it was, in fact, Anunnaki concession. And on the Saturn there was a lot of technology and it was Marduk who was in custody of Saturn. Earth was still in the custody of Enlil, but that was that's that's something very deep we're touching now the, the galactic diplomacy because Enlil, okay, is an Anunnaki an Anarchy, but he's also half Sikar. Because his father, Anu, the head of the empire in this galaxy, married a Sikar queen, a reptilian queen. At a time, she lived in Orion and uh, she had a lot of possessions. And it was a deal where uh, their offspring would have to inherit of the empire, the Anach empire, and in exchange, um, Anu would have all the territories could rule over all her territories. Um, Anu said yes, and uh, he, re he regretted it, I've been told. So when Enlil came to Earth, he brought with him the Sikars. Not with the expedition, but later on, he allowed them to come in. So when we talk about all these rep reptilian royal bloodline who have caused a lot of mayhem on Earth, we say, but are they Anunnaki? Are they Sikar? Because sometimes we would think they this and they are both. They are. They are both. They have the Sikar and the, the royal house of Anu's blood. And that's why they, they marry among each other. And they are very uh, eager to live long and maintain their, you know, their lifespan long, long by some products that they we would unspeakable things. Anyways, once the Sikars were removed from the star system by the Earth Alliance and the Galactic Federation of Worlds, once the Greys were also removed, then Anlil was in, in a weak position. You know, as long as the Sikars were there, Anu couldn't do anything. Nobody couldn't do anything. There needed to be an inside job to get rid of the Sikars first. Then, the Sikar Empire could not come and protect Earth possession. You know, so that was it. Once the Sikar was, were expelled, the key point was Antarctica. The key point was Antarctica when the Dark Fleet was expelled from Antarctica. That was a moment when everything else unfolded. Mars was liberated, you know. Uh, the Dark Fleet went out of the star system with all the Dracos. And that was it. And that was the start of serious cleaning now. And the undergrounds were still in the process of being cleansed. They have been evacuated since. And then, well, the who do we see arriving? The Intergalactic Confederation. Well, first Ia in September 2021. Then in October, the, the Intergalactic Confederation, Cedars, 
because now now we could talk we we now we we had solved the cigar problem so we could do the cleaning inside as we wanted and the nibble were gone as well that's when Ia came back and Ia gave back well Enlil was removed of course and Marduk um, Ninota as, as well he was gone I think at that point so the next step when Enlil was arrested and the Sikar were destitute from their power in this star system um, the, the Intergalactic Confederation with Ia they organize a council to get Anu to come back, to come and make a decree and just remove Enlil. And once this council was 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 done, Ia was the heir of the Anah Empire because Enlil had been arrested. He wasn't the heir anymore. And Anu had enough with, with this. He was like you know, relieved. Ia is now the heir of the Anach Empire. So he has a right. And Ia, with the agreement of his father, decided, because he suddenly was in custody of Saturn and of Earth, again, and keep the title yet, bore for a little while, he gave it back to, to the, the people of Earth. He gave Saturn back to the Earth Alliance, and also Earth was free. He said, oh, no, Earth, it's yours. And because he all, all, all you ever wanted is to see humanity of Earth free, sovereign, and blossoming, you know. So there has been meetings where Ia passed on the custody of Saturn in the hands of the Earth Alliance. Why? Because it's the uh, more prominent indigenous civilization in the star system. So because we, as humans of Earth, are the most advanced indigenous civilization to this star system, we have the custody of it as protectors. So that's what happened. Now, I know there's a lot of people that don't believe the Earth has been liberated, that there are still negative extraterrestrials here. So what what was the critical factor that led to this liberation where the Draconians and the Orion Greys had to leave our solar system? I, I, I thought it was because the arrival of the Intergalactic Confederation that you know these that represented this kind of like twenty four founder races, seeder races that were that had set up the genetic experiments and that they left uh, because they did not want to be seen or recorded. Uh, kind of like in, in a way, I, I think th this goes back to our earlier question about the, the colonies and the center, that, that, the, that the reptilians that were in charge of our solar system were kind of like part of this far-flung draconian empire, and they were behaving in ways that would be embarrassing to the center of the draconian empire. So yes. when the intergalactics arrived, that the, the, these draconians, they knew 
that the intergalactic confederation were going to be viewing everything, you know, and we're being bombarded with orbs and probes all over the place, recording okay. everything. So was that really why they decided to just pack up and leave? It wasn't because there was an overwhelming force that was defeating them militarily, but it was because they didn't want to be seen and recorded by these extraterrestrial, uh, superior or advanced extraterrestrial fleets arriving that were going to be recording everything. Oh, the the Sikars fear the Intergalactic Confederation because the the Cedars are more powerful and more advanced, way more advanced than them. So, the the fight started with really took a, a good turn with Antarctica, you know, and then everything just took off Mars, everything. Um, the arrival of the Intergalactic Confederation allowed the resolution of all this clearing, all the resistance, uh, especially on Earth, in the underground, just they said, okay, we're done, we're done, we're done. But the thing is, with the Sikars, is that they have honor. You can imagine the Klingon in Star Trek. <laughs> That's the Sikars. They have honor. And I know that the Sikars who have been expelled from the star system are considered as losers both by the Sikar Empire and both by the, the Dark Fleet, which is a special organization involving Sikars. That's the question of honor. You've lost this star system, you're a loser. You're not going back to the headquarters. Who, uh, so the Dark Fleet headquarters are in Aldebaran star system, Aldebaran, in the Taurus constellation. And the, um, the Sikar Empire headquarters are in um, Alpha Draconis uh, star systems. Um, well, the, the f you know, the f there was still, uh, before the, the, the Cedars arrived, it was the end of the fights. There was resistance, but it was the end of the fights. But the frequency of these 500 motherships of this very advanced civilization it was like a, a shockwave, a frequency shockwave. And anything that was still resisting just was gone. They were gone. They just had to be there, you know. And that settled everything. That was it. That was it. And when their frequency arrived, entered our solar system through the Jupiter Stargate, the shockwave of frequency activated all the technology that they had left long time ago before they, they left. The arcs, for instance, you know, and all the star seed, all the envoys who are members of the cedar races who are incarnated here felt it as well, and suddenly remembered who they were at that very moment when they entered the star system, the cedars. That was it. Like when you throw a stone in the water, that was it. Well, I know that one of the, the key events uh, that, you've been that you've described is when you had the Jupiter Accords, where there was this agreement where 
United States Space Command was recognized to be the point organization for representing humanity, uh, the, the, our space programs, in dealings with these different extraterrestrial civilizations, the Federation, Andromeda Council, and so forth. And, and General um, Dickinson, uh, James Dickinson, is the head of Space Command. So he has that kind of tremendous authority. Now, recently, more recently, you've described this encounter in January of 2023 at uh, Raven Rock in Pennsylvania, where you had uh, General Glenn Van Herc. You, you recognized him or identified him. And, and he was handed a disclosure plan uh, that presumably would be put into effect by Northern Command uh, and NORAD, that he was in charge of those uh, two organizations. So here you have two powerful military officials. And, and recently, in an unprecedented move, there was General Van Herc was criticizing Space Command yeah. for overstepping its responsibilities or authority when it came to uh, space and tracking Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, well, what do you make of that? Oh, that was so interesting. That was so interesting. I believe it has nothing to do with extraterrestrials or with disclosure. Because what I see is, maybe I'm wrong, but that's my vision. People will make of it what they, they think. So I'm sharing here only my vision, not intelligence. My vision and my understanding personally is that there's a power struggle, a human power struggle, as simple as that. You know, uh, ETs have their plans and agendas to liberate Earth and get the disclosure going. That's the thing. But then the humans do human things. So how I see it is that, okay, General Dinkinson was on Jupiter and was put in charge of uh, the, the new Earth uh, Starfleet, say. That was power, big role. And then the, the update of the disclosure plan is given to the head of the NORAD. Um, General Van Herc, for tactical reasons, and I suppose it's a good reason, not, you know, different people uh, leading different uh, uh, sectors of, of this. Um, and I think, you know, to me, it's just a question of power. One, oh, you were given the, 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 to be at the head of the agreements that happened on Jupiter, but I was given the disclosure plan. And don't step on my, you know, my my territory. And I think that's just what it is. I think that's just what it is, and there's nothing to worry about. Uh, and Santa Claus, yes, Santa Claus. We for we are we have seen um, the, we have watched the the leaked videos of the the Apollo mission where. Uh, the, the astronaut describes, hey, Houston, we have a problem. There's a Santa Claus there. And we know that Santa Claus is the name for UFO. So who's going to be in charge of... That's what the power struggle is, to my understanding. Who's going to be in charge between these two men of either um, 
rep representing the, the first civilian contact with extraterrestrials, uh, presenting them, introducing them to the public who's going to be in charge of that. It's going to be a military person. Um, or, or, or an end. Is it who's going to lead the project about retro-engineering technology and UFO technology? Who's going to have the ET technology? Because, okay, there's everything we've retro-engineered until now. Now people start to, to know about it. You have David Grush who came about to, out to, to talk about this and other people. Now it's with the protection uh, law, it's, it's easy to uh, come forward now and it's going to be more and more interesting, more and more people. But then there's this. But, you know, the disclosure is going f is moving forward. Now the, the extraterrestrials plan to reveal themselves publicly, because they've been working with the government since a, a good while. Uh, the, the governments know a lot about them. They're working together. They have the Earth Alliance, you know, they go to meeting in space. You have all the, the people walking among us, etc., etc. So who's going to take in, in, in the, the technology now that these ETs are going to openly give us? Because at the moment, they make first contact, civilian contact, public contact. It's official that they're on TV, they're in the streets, they're everywhere, the ships are coming. We step into a new era where we're about to join the Galactic Federation of Worlds for protection and for exchange of technologies. You know, once you are a member of the Galactic Federation of Worlds, you get to exchange technology freely. You share, you put the knowledge and the technology in common. So who's going to have the leadership of getting this, these ET technologies implemented? That's power. So I think there's this behind as well. But that's my vision, my own personal analysis with what I see, what I know, uh, I try to make an understanding of it. So I'd be interested to know about your understanding of it. Yeah, I think it's a power struggle. I, I think Space Command is kind of relatively new in terms of authority in the US military system. It only was formed in 2019. Uh, re, 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 reconstituted in 2019. It previously was existed from 1982 up until 2002, and then it was uh, disbanded, and that, and it just became a, a subordinate command within the U.S. Air Force. But it was reconstituted as one of the kind of uh, combatant commands in the U.S. military system, which means that it is responsible for organizing. The Air Force, the Navy, the uh, Army, the Space Force assets that deal with space, anything above 60 miles in the atmosphere is all under the domain of space, uh, is considered space. So S Space Command is in charge of all of that in terms of operations. So uh, that creates conflict with uh, NORAD, which is responsible for defense of North America, uh, because how do you deal with uh, UFOs that, sure, they can be in the atmosphere, appear in the atmosphere, but they come from space. So who has jurisdiction? Is it NORAD? Is it Space Command? So there's a, 
of a battle. But I think you know, if you look at it logically, it's like well, you know, because these objects come from deep space and they're over our skies, uh, it's space force. Or sorry, space. Well, space force is part of it, but space command has to have ultimate jurisdiction because they're responsible for tracking them and interdicting them if, if necessary. So you know, I think that's the struggle. Yeah. That's the struggle. Yeah. But you, you mentioned David Grush, and, and, and I think I'd like to finish up with a with final question and for now and, and just get your response on this. Now, some people believe that David Grush is, is part of a PSYOP to condition the American public and the world for a alien false flag event and that he's putting out this narrative that we don't know what these are, that uh, there's a kind of fear factor or there's a national security threat. Others believe, and I, I, I've tended to kind of go with this theory, that it's a limited hangout, that they're putting out some of the truth, that there's alien craft that are being reverse engineered, uh, but corporations have been studying these for decades and have made very little progress, you know, that they haven't had any major breakthroughs at all. So, yeah, that we've got alien spacecraft, but the corporations are studying them and they're just too advanced. We don't know what they are, but they're kind of there. So, so the, the things that are flying out there, that they're not our stuff. That's, so I think that's the <laughs> limited hangout. And then there's the genuine, genuine disclosure. You know, I think maybe you, maybe this could be part of what the Earth Alliance and Space Command and the Galactic Federation are doing is like they're using people like David Grush to like prepare us for genuine disclosure that that, that we're going to have all of the technology that's been suppressed and released soon and that that's so that we're going to have a very positive future so we, which way do you go in in these different explanations for people like david grush and other whistleblowers coming forward well um i straight straight straightly tell you i go for the last and third version because um for many reasons i I've been told that this final update of this disclosure plan is uh, very clever and will surprise everyone. And it's very cleverly done. Thorhan said to me, this is genius. That's this. So I wait always to make a judgment of what I see in this story. But also because what's important now? It's to take it step by step to the public. ETs are real. That's the first step. And that's a big thing. ETs are real and they have been here for a long time and have worked with our governments. And that's the tough, first tough part. And this is happening. Whether uh, some people like Stephen Greer will say all the ETs are positive, whether uh, someone like David Grush will say, oh, the ETs are a threat, they are negative. Uh, I would say it doesn't matter for the moment. What matters is that these different narratives blend in with the different current of thoughts and it just goes through. It goes through the, 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 the gate to the people's mind. Whatever they think, whatever they think about aliens, it goes through their mind and they realize, wow, aliens exist, they are, it's real. 
but they've been here and they've worked with our governments. Oh, wow. But then, once the, the, the mentalities of the collective unconscious of humanity has realized that and it's assimilated, then we can pass to the next step, contact. But I think that, you know, if, if the truth, truth, truth was, say, was said straight away about the retroengineered technology, what does this imply to disclose all the top secret stories? Because what does it imply? Oh, so we have re retroengineered this technology. It works very well. We've built TR3Bs. We've built even more. We have Solar Warden. And that's a shock. And there, there is so much more that I personally don't know about these top secret programs that I think if, if they were revealed now, it would cause a bit of chaos, and especially for the military, because they don't want us to know that they've been working on technologies that have not been always ethical with humanity. You know what I mean? So saying that technologies, retro-engineered technologies, oh, it hasn't worked, I, I think it's false. It has worked. We have even implied, you know, in every day's work with the fiber optics or super materials. We have so much from it. Um, what I want to say else. Uh, so that's the work with the retroengineering technology. That's the work with the good ETs. We've, they've given us technology, but it hasn't really worked. That means we're not going to tell you now yet about our secret space program and stuff. Not yet. It's too much. And we need to clean up our, uh, our house before we open it to the public. <laughs> but then also, um, you know the narrative there isn't any extraterrestrial uh, any regressive extraterrestrials they are good of course to me it's absurd why would we have the monopole of evil you know on this planet it's ridiculous it's everywhere it's because also if the governments disclose that they've been working with the orion grace for instance or the sicar reptilians well They're gonna get to tell people what they've done with these these ETs, the abductions, the Montauk, the Mylab, the Mylabs, oh God, military uh, abductions. They're gonna the harm that they've done humanity. That they've, they've sold out the Magic Stick Twelve has has sold out humanity to the Orion Greys. They, they're gonna have to say that, and they don't want to. So as long as the deep state is in power, they won't they won't go there, you know saying that, oh, there are regressive aliens who have worked with them. Oh, I don't know, they're not going to say that yet. That's not them to say that. That's other people who are protected, and I suppose will come forward. Um, so that's my view on it, and I always keep in mind what Thoran said to me. This plan is genius, and you will be surprised until the end, to the end. So, I think David Grush knows more than he revealed, and he cannot reveal everything because behind him there are, I think, entities, military entities who uh, uh, forbade, forbade him or to say things, or he may have signed the NDS, I don't know. But um, 
It's just a start, you know. What's important is that humanity realizes that they are not alone in the universe. It is a real and they have been here and they are they are here. So that's to me what matters. And I personally have very strong reasons to believe there will not be an alien invasion scenario. It it was planned. It was a real thing. They've prepared the deep set has prepared all the holographic technologies has prepared to use false aliens and ships that they've re-engineered to make leave its alien invasion. But how things are now, it won't happen. I believe it won't happen because the the well the exopolitical scene of on Earth has changed. So do you still feel confident that 2023 is going to be the, the, the watershed year? It's going to be the one where we step into this kind of post-disclosure world and all the things in the past will be revealed and will eventually be kind of like uh, like forgotten or like hard, hard to believe that that we actually lived through that. So you, you still feel optimistic about what's what's ahead in the next six months to a year? I still feel optim optimistic. Now things are, there's a lot of interference. Will it happen everything in 2023? I think it has started and it's taking the time it needs, but I think 2023 and 2024, personally, I see the, the, the speed, <laughs> slow speed it's taking and, uh, I would say it has started. 2023 is the year of disclosure, but to know the whole of it, maybe it will take another year to spread it throughout time. That's what I think. Yeah, well, certainly the, the whistleblower protection laws that are in effect and uh, new congressional uh, legislation being put forth in the uh, the Intelligence Authorization Act for 2024 where companies are obliged to reveal any projects that deal with extraterrestrial life or reverse engineering of captured technologies. You know, that to me is is like, well, that's really putting pressure on the corporations because that Congress is saying, look, we know you're doing this. We know you've achieved breakthroughs. So if you don't tell us, we're going to cut you, cut your funding. So to me, that's very powerful and so they have six months from when that legislation is passed to when that goes into effect so certainly i think in the middle of 2024 when that legislation goes into effect i imagine there'll be a lot of corporations that are feeling the pressure to to reveal everything that's going on and, and of course the whistleblowers so so where do people go elena to you know find out about you and your current projects what what do you have planned in the next uh, few months well thank you well to know all about me it's elenadanan.org it's my website and you have access to my books um and all the rest um i'm always writing books so uh but this was going to be a surprise <laughs> well i'm writing many books at the time so um you will see uh, you, I, I encourage you to uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel because I put everything for free in there. There's a lot of videos with all my updates. 
And if you want to know the behind the scenes, my anecdotes meeting when meeting with Ia, for instance, or with Norhan, what's happening in the, you know, everyday lives on the Excelsior or other things, I do webinars and Q&As. So it's a Q&A webinar once a month. Uh, you have everything. You find that on my website. So crowdcast. But that, that's good fun. That's good fun. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. Well, well, thank you, Elena. You're doing great work. You're, you're really giving people uh, the, the latest contemporary information concerning not only extraterrestrials, but also major space organizations like Space Command and even NORAD and, and Northern, Northern Command. Uh, that's very important. So I want to thank you for being on Exopolitics today and for your service. Thank you. You have been listening to Exopolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.